Welcome to the 44th episode of the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brendan Diesendorf. And I'm Jack Neely. We are here to talk about the practical side of operations work. This week, we're talking about working to bring on new, new team members. Essentially, the process to go through from the moment the job offer is accepted to the end of their first day or week of work. Ah, onboarding. Yeah, and there's really two sides to this process. There's the side from the operations team or the system team or the IT people who are bringing people in, creating accounts and such. And there's the side from when you're starting a new job and you're the new guy and you need to go through the, through the process and through the ringer. We're not going to go deep into the HR side of this. We're going to assume that your company has benefits and payroll and retirement and those kinds of things. Or you have done the proper homework to make sure that you're enrolled in good health care. Yes. Th these are all pieces that are kind of outside the general purview of the IT or the operations teams because HR usually has these policies pretty strictly ingrained based on the laws of wherever you are. So that's not the a laws of whatever state you live in. And no matter what your employment uh, setup is, make sure you have health insurance. Okay, political speech over. So I'm, I want to start with the operations side. And one of the, the most important things to me in this whole process is making sure the internal documentation that covers all of the accounts and all of the access and all of the processes and all the steps are checklisted somewhere. So it's really easy to see this is the order of things I need to do. And these are all the things I need to do. I need to get a JIRA account, and I need to get an email account, and I need to get my SSH keys into these three places, and whatever else it is. Having all of this written down and updated constantly lets you know that when a new team member starts, everything is either finished or not finished, and everything flows smoothly. A pattern I've seen in a lot of places are, hey, the new guy's starting, great first task for the new guy is to update the onboarding wiki document. Yeah, I, I don't I don't like that so much. And while yeah, he's the one that's going to practice it, or her, um, you should know what your onboarding processes are. You should have them generally more or less correct. And you should have a team member who's going to work closely with the new the new person follow along and if there are errors or omissions in the onboarding document or something isn't clear step in at that point and fix it don't don't wait and file a ticket and come back to it a week from now fix it now when when the documentation says you know go, go create an account on a system you say oh well, that, that system we don't use it anymore put a note we in deprecated the that last week yeah put a note in the documentation that says this may no longer be needed and then tag or mention, you know, a boss or other management that can come in and say, can give a, an equivocal, okay, we're either doing this or we're not doing this. So the next person who comes on doesn't go through the same process again. I always find myself in situations where we have onboarding documentation, but the various bits and pieces get farmed out to vastly far-flung different teams. And Sometimes it's hard to have enough control over the change that happens as a as a workplace or 
as a system evolves to keep all that stuff well documented in a single place to to walk a new employee through the process. Alternatively, sometimes employees have special needs or access or accounts. Um, security team members often need different levels of access that are not common. So that may get, may get missed in an onboarding document because you haven't brought a new security person in for a while. Your IT department's completely changed your uh, uh, PKI certificates and documented somewhere completely random else. So one of the things that's often good to do on the operation side, again, is when you get the new user's request for hardware for either a laptop or a desktop or whatever it is they're, get, they're doing then, that's a good time to put in their requests for all the accounts you can you can instantiate requests for. This will make the process smoother when the new person shows up. Hopefully, on their first day, when they're given their hardware, they also have access to most of the systems. That's really the ideal point is the day you start your job is the day you have accounts. I have never seen that practically actually work anywhere. Usually, the first day you start you might have accounts the next day. Yeah, often um, smaller I've also teams seen worse, but yes. Often smaller teams are able to better enact all of the accounts together. So if there's only 3 or 4 operations folks, they know pretty well all of the things that are needed so they can get it done pretty quickly. Large organizations, 2-300 people with a team of, you know, 15 or 20 in the the DevOps space it's often assumed that somebody else is working on it. And so, oh, I don't need to worry about that. Somebody else is going to get that for me. And then it doesn't get done. Yeah, there definitely should be folks that have ownership over the account creation process. And it may be many different types of accounts, source code control versus an AD account versus a a Unix system account. But each... Each part of that should have an owner that's responsible for uh, divvying out that responsibility to the team or making sure those accounts are created in a timely fashion. Another important piece of this is many accounts need approval from a manager. You can't have a self you can't self approve an account. You can't say, "Hey, I'm just creating an account for a guy. We're doing a thing." You have to have somebody above you in the chain of command okay the account. And sometimes and HR and sometimes legal. and <laughs> There's an auditor who wants to come in and verify that access to sensitive systems is properly controlled and constrained to the people who need access. This is especially true if you're dealing with money or healthcare data. Ah, but, PCI requirements. Yeah, or or just banks or anything else that has has anything sensitive or damaging if access was given out inappropriately. And actually, as... As much as I don't like working in those environments, when you do work in those environments, the regulations are set forth so that things are well-documented, things are diagrammed, and things are ticketed. So usually the process actually works really smoothly when that is is highly regulated. Uh, So there are actually some interesting benefits for working in a a PCI or a healthcare uh, type where there's that kind of data to have those processes that well-oiled and taken care of. The unfortunate flip side of that is sometimes the process is very smooth. It's just very slow because you need to have certain other people sign off on things. And if they're on vacation or they're out of the office or there was a foul-up in communication, sometimes 
you are waiting on these approvals for an unnecessary amount of time. It's like waiting at the stoplight on the highway. Wouldn't it be nice if all the cars moved at the same time? That would be glorious. <laughs> Another interesting part of the onboarding process for folks is the software loadout on machines. In in years gone by, it was a relatively simple process to just image a machine and hand, hand out the laptop or the desktop to whoever it was, and you have email and web browsers and stuff configured. But with operations work and development work, there are a lot of feelings that come along with different editors and different workspaces and different ways of arranging data. But there is a core of things that you need. So as best you can, make a process that will bootstrap somebody's work environment, getting them the tools that they need, especially packages or other pieces like that. Before And then you let them configure what editor they like and what shell they like and what web browser they like on top of that, but give them all of the underlying pieces they need for authentication and for access and for custom software plugins or repositories that you're using internally. So when they are, when they're trying to build the project, they're trying to check something out on their first couple of days, they actually have the pieces they need to successfully build and they're not spending a bunch of time downloading, you know, several tens gigs, several tens of gigs of software, whatever it is that they need to start getting some work done. With the speed that these tools change, it's often impractical to keep an image as people used to do. So this is where it's important to either have a Git script or a checkout of some kind or some other continuous integration, continuous flow process that you can automatically some update. Some sort of tool that a new employee can run and set up some common tasks, set up Kerberos access, set up you know their first Git clone of the main project repository and the various bits that, that sort of orbit that. So as I've gained more experience and had and and worked with different groups, um, in the past I've just kind of been issued a laptop, a MacBook, and said, Here's your company MacBook, get to work. And in most cases, I think nowadays it's really common to have some sort of managed uh, MacBook or laptop issue to you that probably has things like VPN on it, uh, perhaps MANA certificates, so your laptop's always on an appropriate VPN, uh, user authentication, perhaps even some more detailed monitoring of of the applications installed and what changes you make to it. I think even Google is, is heavily monitoring their employees' laptops at this point. Yes, yeah, so it kind of makes sense from a corporate perspective that you want to ensure compliance for regulatory reasons for lots of stuff. A couple of jobs ago, the managed laptops that we were using had auto-configured firewalls that were so locked down, you couldn't print to the office printer. And it was okay. Printing, uh, who needs that? And they actually had a, a, a fairly nice process. If you needed an exception or a change to a rule, you just wrote something up to your manager and they would accept it and they would write it down and they would log it somewhere. So they would say, okay, well, this person needs a, an exception to get around this piece because this valid work reason. And they would this open it up. This person prints the company paychecks. He should have access to the printer. But they didn't want to give everybody access to all the printers because sometimes printers are in sensitive areas and sometimes pr people shouldn't be allowed to print documents because of various content. 
So the policy in retrospect actually made a little bit of sense and the ease of getting an exception put in was was very good. But it made everybody stop and thinking, why is this thing locking down my printing? There's definitely a really fine balance of, especially when you're onboarding systems administrators and highly skilled IT folks, you don't want to give them an environment that's so restrictive that it annoys the living crap out of them, and all they want to do is escape to a sane job. This or, totally can can go pretty far-fetched. Or they want to escape to an off-the-books Linux laptop or a workstation or other environment that they can actually exert some control over, and then there is no management and there is no oversight of said environment. The experiences I've had is if a VPN is required, it's usually some commercial PCI checkboxy uh, VPN vendor, which is quite proprietary. And I have the worst experiences with those. And they are they are part of the driver that make me want to find, is there an SSH backdoor? Is there an open VPN backdoor? Is there some way I can get sane network con- connectivity that works? Well, Jack, you do know the definition of enterprise software, right? Oh, sure. Enlighten me. It's software that's purchased by somebody who will never use it. <laughs> so it's it's heavy on features and, and light on user interface. and It's heavy on promise and light on features, yeah. Or user interface or testing. I can tell my VPN software is running because I can see the log of C++ assertions going by. Yeah. So on the other side of this, if you are an employee that is preparing to onboard, you've you've gone through your job interview, you have gotten an offer letter and you've accepted it. What are the Congratulations, kinds of by the way, you've been hired. Take a deep breath. Don't panic. This is not a time to start freaking out about things or trying to overcompensate Calm for something. Sysadmin on. One of the things that if I could give advice to the new employees that I work with and, you know, actually strangle them a little bit, um, is it takes good time and good work to really onboard and really become productive in a new job, especially with, with complex computer systems and the type of IT work that uh, Brendan, you and I do. It takes some ramp up time to be to be more than helpful at your your job. For me, Which, that time is three to six months. Yeah. And that, sound, that sounds like a really long time, but for these complex environments, you have to internalize so much state before you can really be productive because you're constantly tripping over why is this there and why is that over here and how are these things configured that you have to take the time to learn it and not try to rush through it. And one of the things that I see, I've seen with several new hires uh, that I've worked with recently is... Folks are so are so uh, willing and so anxious to sort of hit the ground running uh, that they are trying to work through the onboarding uh, for their new job before they've quit their old job uh, and putting in weird extra hours and trying to get all the administrative stuff done before they actually start to work so that they can be more productive. And that- just take a deep breath, calm down. We Yes, we are actually paying you to sit down and work out your HR crap on the first day. 
And that time between jobs, it's a break. It, it's you're not being paid, and take it, enjoy it, and enjoy some time with your family or stuff that you like to do. I, I know a number of people who often take a week or two between jobs just so they have a breather. They have a thing. Of, they have a period of time where they're not on call for anything. They can't be bothered about anything. There's nothing to do. There's nothing to think about. There's there's no oh, worries there's plenty or cares. To do. It's just well, not work. <laughs> there's no schedule to follow for work. There's none of those tasks. So you can catch up on if you yard work or painting or whatever it is that you're trying to get done in, in your free time, or you can just go and have a beer at lunch and not not worry about it. That totally pe- people don't value that rest in between jobs nearly enough. I've been a, guilty of that in the past. I used to be very quick between jobs if I'd stop working at one job on a Friday and start the next job that following Monday and I'd be moving that the weekend in between and that's never yeah, that, that, no. that's a recipe for burnout but yeah the the last several folks that I've uh, worked with onboarding I expect them to not be productive to work through all the HR and metadata and onboarding stuff uh order a new machine and get comfortable with their new laptop, perhaps. Um, as as part of normal ramp-up time, I don't want them working on that before they're actually hired. I don't want them working on that after hours. It's also important that when you start a new position, you are eager to not, not please people, but you're eager to make a good impression and that you are positive and you have good dynamic energy moving forward. So people, people's first impression of you comes off as this is someone who is happy to be at this job, wants to be here, and wants to be working on interesting things. Yeah, and there, and there can be a, a fine line between making a good first impression and being happy and, and meeting new friends and uh, building those relationships so you can know that you can work with your uh, fellow employees um, versus going overboard and, and trying to put in extra hours the first week of work. This also reminds me of one of the, the common traps that people get into when digging into a new piece of code or when they've inherited a piece of code and they say, all these things are just crap. We should tear it down and start start from zero. Like, no, all of oh. these things are here for a reason. And take time to learn why the system was built the way it was currently built. This allows you to understand kind of the organizational structure. Um, if you look back a couple of episodes, we have, we have a podcast episode that covers how people build things that reflect the organization that they work for. So understanding how, say, Puppet is organized informs how the operation teams are put together. Because you can see where the application developers are and you can see where the security folks are and you can see where all the different players come in based on how the modules are organized and written and the various qualities of the features in the in the code base. And it's important you learn to work in that environment before uh, proposing massive changes to that environment. But learning to work in that environment will teach you more about the organization than almost anything else. And this is kind of basic, but it's also really important to show up to meetings on time. Answer emails appropriately professionally with complete sentences and spelling. The number of young hires that I've seen who treat their first job out of college like they're still in college really makes me sad. 
this is a professional environment. You're being paid to be here, even if... You use complete sentences. And run spell check. And if the meeting starts at 2 o'clock, at one fifty nine, walk into the room. Or one fifty. When you roll in even five minutes the, late... Even on some of the virtual uh, teleconferencing software I use, I always show up a few minutes early. I've got a buddy of mine that will click in to go into the room as soon as his Google Calendar timer goes off, or calendar alert will go off. And you can use that time to make sure your microphone is set up correctly and your headphone levels are good. So when the, when, the mute, when the meeting actually starts, you're ready. And this way you're not wasting anybody's time. Nobody's idling and sitting there tapping their watch going, okay, I guess we'll start, you know, 10 after. Yeah, it's 15 after for a PhD, 5 after for a master's. Oh, wait, sorry. That's Eastern academic time. That doesn't apply to most places. <laughs> One of the things that's, that is always very helpful is, and Brendan and I, you talked about this a little bit before, but making sure that you have adequate FaceTime and the ability to work with someone else that has experience on the job to get, to get yourself onboarded and spun up. Especially with the proliferation of work from home and remote jobs, which I'm very fortunate to have one of, I started this job and switched uh, several consulting clients in this job and had to get spun up remotely um, and sometimes without a really solid uh, point of contact, uh, which makes things less fun than they should be. And especially with a with remote employees, it's really important that you have somebody that employee can work with, can check in with, you know, a couple times a day for the the first week, um, have some probably lengthy uh, teleconferencing calls with to make sure that they are are focused on all the right pieces of metadata, they've got all the accounts set up, and all that detail. Uh, it's It's a little bit more challenging not to be in the same room with somebody while you're trying to get them spun up. But it's actually very, very reasonable process to go through, but it is a very purposeful process. And ironically, I find that the more senior the new employee is, the more this is needed. A lot of junior, a lot of junior developers, a lot of junior operations folks will come in and assume they don't know what's going on and try to find somebody to, to kind of shadow to see what, see what they need to be looking at. And a lot of senior folks feel that, well, they should know all these things already. And they're angry at themselves for not being faster to pick things up, for not being better at these things, because we don't change jobs all that often. And even senior folks should be mindful of the fact that it takes time. It takes, like I said earlier, three to six months really to come up to speed to be working at your full efficiency in an environment. So I hear Amazon shopping for a new HQ building. Yeah. That'll be interesting where they go. I see you have feelings about this, Brendan. So I've never actually worked for Amazon. and Not I have I. I have some friends who I've not been in touch with directly recently who have gone to work for Amazon. And from the bits and pieces I've heard... It is a very, very demanding work environment. And if that's your cup of tea, that's great. But you are working 
really hard all the time at near burnout speeds constantly. So a lot of folks really want to employ people who have been in Amazon for two to four years, but a lot of people don't make it in Amazon that long. I've heard that you either fit in well with our culture or you don't fit at all. I think that's, I think that's a fair assessment. I think that's a fair assessment. But still, the the logistics of really what they're proposing to do is is just one of those systems that scale things that I just kind of want to learn more about. They're going to open a second headquarter building, invest $5 billion into the local city and community where they go, hire 50,000 some odd employees. I mean, that is a massive undertaking, a massive bit of scale. And Amazon's pretty good at scale. And a just massive bit of hiring and spin-up and figuring out how to navigate a new employer in a new building with new processes uh, until that you can really get productive at the job. All in an environment that is new for the Amazon people to be in even because they're coming into a new city that they've never seen before. And they're navigating building leases and all kinds of other things that they need to get done. So it's everybody is kind of off their normal footing and trying to figure things out. It would be very and interesting to be in I've definitely had some frustration process. in other, uh, in other environments where sort of everybody on the team is kind of green. And not that they're not qualified employees, but they haven't been at the job all that long. And we're all kind of looking around trying to figure out how everything fits together and somebody's trying to scramble around and figure out how this particular system works to match with someone else's request to match with someone else's uh, uh, Jira ticket or a bug fix or something. Yeah, on a very small scale, several jobs ago, I was coming into an organization that had recently been acquired and they lost a number of their folks in the interim. And there was a lot of kind of scrambling to figure out, so who owns what and where, the, where are these things and where's the documentation for the other bit over there? Because it wasn't very clear and there, was, there wasn't a lot of time to help spinning up. Luckily, there were a couple of employees that came back. Um, they made that transition a little smoother, but it was, it was interesting. I can only imagine what something the size of Amazon would be like to have that many new people starting and going through the grinder of trying to get accounts and access and be productive and, you know, fit in with a corporate culture that is rapidly changing because they're building a new headquarters. Uh, how you scale hiring. But yeah, I'd, I'd totally love to know more about how that works at that scale. Because I figure if you can do it at that scale, then you can also do it at, at medium and small scales pretty effectively. Please take the time to rate the show on iTunes. It's the best way for new listeners to find us. Additionally, we welcome feedback about shows we've recorded or topics you would like us to cover. Leave us a comment on the website, operations.fm. Send us your thoughts on email, feedback at operations.fm, or use at operations.fm on Twitter. That wraps it up for the 44th episode of the Practical Operations Podcast. We have been Brendan Diesendorf. And I'm Jack Neely. Thanks.